morning, guys. <clears throat> I'm excited to get the opportunity to share a big part of my heart with you today. I think one thing that's true of my personal story, but also the story of Salt City Church, is that Salt City was planted in deep suffering. So I remember in September of 2016, God began to call Melissa and I to be a part of planting Salt City Church in Minneapolis. And it was just a few months after that that Melissa's mom lost a two-year battle with breast cancer. And I remember in the midst of wrestling with her death and the big step of faith that we were taking, I remember God just kind of impressed this weird verse on my heart. It's actually in the book of Acts where Jesus is talking to the apostle Paul and he sort of shows him all that he's going to suffer for his name. And it was as if God was saying to me in that moment, I'm going to do some great things, but you're going to suffer. And I never really could have imagined what this first year of church planting was going to be like. And Never could have imagined that I was going to watch my son die. Some of you watch that and be like, man, how would I respond? Such deep questions. But I'm not really here today to talk about suffering because I think it's impossible for us to anticipate how we would respond. But I want to talk to you about who God is in the midst of suffering. And God is the God who turns suffering into glory. God is able to take the mess of our lives, the mess of this world, and make something beautiful out of it. So the message is pretty simple this morning. We're just looking at one verse, a verse that God has especially used in my life since Jude's death. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. It'll be on the screens. It says this. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're going to look at three realities from this verse that cause us to sing in our suffering. So I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you are suffering deeply. There's many in this room, I'm sure, that are. There's many of you who would say, you've never suffered anything really big in your life before. But no matter which boat you're in, I hope that this message prepares you for the day when suffering comes into your life. Jesus made us a lot of promises. Some of them we really like, some of them we don't like. One of the ones we don't like, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. In other words, suffering's coming. And so I feel a stewardship of my suffering to help other people in their suffering present and future. So let's look at three realities that cause us to sing in our suffering. Number one, our suffering is light. Number two, our suffering is preparing us And number three, our suffering will end in eternal glory. 
First of all, our suffering is light. Isn't that interesting that in this passage, suffering is described as light and momentary? I don't know about you, but I have never described or experienced my own suffering as light or momentary. Anyone who has gone through significant suffering would say it feels like a heavy burden and like it will never end. So for example, if I was in the middle of this suffering and I sat down with you at a coffee shop and I began to describe the pain that I was experiencing in my suffering and you kind of leaned back in your chair and said, sounds kind of light to me. I might be tempted to pick up something heavy and throw it at your face and say, does that feel light to you? Right? And I think sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we read verses like this in the Bible and we're like, are you kidding me? Who wrote this? And thankfully, we can find things like that out. We know that the person who wrote this is the Apostle Paul. So in the midst of suffering, you got to turn on your mind. And what you'll find is if you begin to dig into the context of this scripture, you see that the Apostle Paul was not naive and ignorant about what suffering really was, sort of looking at the outside and saying, it's easy, suffering's no big deal, light, momentary, get over it. But we'll see that he has a paradoxical perspective on suffering. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, just a few chapters before this, this is how Paul describes his own suffering. He says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's more like it. Anyone who's ever been through significant suffering, that's the way it feels. So utterly burdened beyond my own strength that I despaired of life itself. Paul is saying, when I get beat up for my faith, when I'm alone, when I'm suffering for the gospel, I want my life to end. Okay, so here's the question. Did he get it right in chapter one? And by chapter four, he just went crazy? Or is there something for us to learn about suffering from Paul's perspective? Is it possible that in the midst of suffering, we could both experience that suffering as a heavy burden that makes us despair of life itself and that we could actually experience that suffering in real time as light and momentary. How would that be possible? I think we get a clue as we zoom out even further and look at Paul's broader ministry. In one place he says that as he was preaching the gospel, he experienced Jesus as standing beside him and strengthening him so that the message of the gospel might be fully proclaimed through him. Here's the key to suffering in such a way that you simultaneously can be honest about it and experience it as other people do, and yet also experience it as light and momentary. Jesus is with you 
every step of the way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And Melissa and I's testimony through this entire time of suffering with Jude is that Jesus has been with us. I'll never forget after driving from the hospital where he was born to the hospital where he ended up having his first surgery and walking into that room of doctors and looking around and being so overwhelmed that I didn't know what to do, I went to that bathroom, I laid on the floor, I cried out to God that I didn't know what to do. I came back in the room and all I could get the strength to do was to walk up to Jude's bed. Slowly. And I placed my hand on his head. And in a whisper, I said, Jesus, heal my son. And I remember someone started praying next to me. I found out later that her name was Sarah. Happened to be a Christian standing right next to me. I don't remember what she said. But the profound effect that that moment had in my soul is that Jesus would be with us every step of the way. And my testimony is that Jesus has walked me from that hospital room to five months of watching my son die to his graveside through the grief of losing him since July 11th and up on this stage to testify to all of you that Jesus is alive. We're not talking about a theoretical person. We are talking about someone who is with us every step in, of the way in our pain and the way that I have experienced Jesus, especially lately, is as the man of sorrows. Scripture says that Jesus is the man of sorrows and acquainted with our suffering. Here's the, what that means. It's a deep mystery. When Jesus was on the cross, he didn't just die for your sin. He actually bore your griefs. Think about this for a second. When Jesus was on the cross, he experienced the very same grief that I am experiencing in the loss of my son. Jude Stevenson passed through the heart of Jesus Christ. Whatever you're going through this morning, whether it's a small thing or it's a big thing, in terms of suffering, it will begin to make you feel misunderstood and alone. Many times you'll meet with people, you'll share your heart with them, they'll sincerely try to bear your burdens with you, and you'll leave feeling misunderstood and alone. I've even felt that in this process in talking to my own wife, Melissa. Because there's a sense in which no one else can really understand your suffering, the way you suffer, with your background, your temperament. 
the way you experience that grief, except for Jesus. He is the person who can look you in the eye in the midst of your real pain and your real suffering, and he can genuinely say, I understand. And so, your suffering can simultaneously be experienced as a heavy burden that you cannot bear and light and momentary because Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He will help you every step of the way. Have you talked to him about it? Have you taken your sorrow to him? Have you taken your suffering to him and let him walk with you? through it. Okay, so we need to know in order to bear our suffering that Jesus is with us. We also need to know that our suffering matters. And the Apostle Paul says that our suffering is doing something. Our suffering is preparing us. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt as you're going through some kind of pain or some kind of suffering, have you ever wondered what's the point of this? Why am I going through this? Am I wasting my time? Does this matter? Is this going anywhere? And have you asked yourself the question, can I just get this over with and get on with my life and start doing something that's important? And in those moments, what we need to know is that our suffering matters. Probably the moment that I felt this most acutely, was when Jude was hooked up to the ventilator, he wasn't able to make any sound. So I remember standing next to his bed, and he was in such tremendous pain that he's trying to scream, and I'm standing right next to him, and no sound is coming out of his mouth. I've never wanted to hear a crying baby more in my entire life. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, okay, I get like, if he dies, he's going to go to heaven. But does this matter? Is this a wasted moment? Is this going somewhere or is this just going to like disappear? Does God care about this? And what the Apostle Paul says is that we need to think of our significant pain and the pain that's maybe even a little bit more insignificant the way that an athlete thinks about working out. So you think of an athlete, let's say an NFL player, and they're lifting weights and they're doing two-a-days, they're working their butt off, and when they get to the Super Bowl and they win, you see grown men cry. And at the end of that journey, they'll say, it was all worth it. What are they saying? The pain was preparation for the glory. Or think of a concert pianist practicing 10 hours a day 
Their fingers hurt. Their joints ache. Their mind is numb. But when they play at Carnegie Hall and the crowd goes nuts and the hair is standing up on the back of their head, they say it was all worth it because they understand that the practice, the pain was preparing them for the glory. In some amazing mystery, That's what our suffering is like. It's like practice. It's preparation. It's going somewhere. It's moving in a direction if we will submit to it and put pain in its proper context and understand that God is at work in the midst of our suffering in a special way. I was reminded of this of sort of a lighthearted moment in our family. Soon after Jude died, we were watching a bunch of Disney movies. And one of the Disney movies that we were watching as a family was Beauty and the Beast. And everybody was enjoying Beauty and the Beast and getting into it, but especially my two-and-a-half-year-old son, Gabe. And Gabe was really being affected by the twists and turns in the plot, right? Like when the beast is growling, he's like hiding under a blanket. When he doesn't know what's going to happen next, he's taking convenient bathroom breaks. I say convenient because we're trying to potty train him. So he's just like running to the bathroom, going and then coming back. I'm like, okay, this is working. We should watch scary movies more often. (laughs) And then, you know, the the crowd is coming out with swords and clubs and they're going to go try to kill the beast. And he's like, oh no, what is going to happen? But he's going through a kind of suffering. And all of our kids are being affected by those different scenes, but he is especially being affected by all that. And so, when the beast turns into a prince, sorry if I like ruined that for you guys. <laughs> you've been living under a rock So when the beast turns into a prince, he went absolutely crazy. He stood up on the couch, and it's like excitement rocketed from his toes up to the tips of his fingers. And he's just standing like, ah, I don't know what to do. You see, the suffering had prepared him for the glory. It's because he agonized so deeply that the resolution was so meaningful to him. If we had heaven's perspective and we could look back at our lives right now, we would want to suffer more, not less. Because there is a sense in which those who suffer most will experience heaven with the most bliss. The more pain, the more gain. Think of a blind person getting to heaven and seeing mountains for the first time. Mountains that aren't broken by the fall. You go from seeing regular mountains to glorified mountains, they just get to see glorified mountains. 
kind of makes you want to be blind, doesn't it? Your suffering matters. Whatever you're going through, I want to invite you into this perspective that it's preparing you, that it's going somewhere. For Jude to be born into our family and to lose him and to get him back in heaven is better than to have never lost him at all. Amazing. Part of the reason we can have joy in the midst of the suffering is because we believe that. That is true. Let me describe for you a little bit what this glory is going to be like. It's in the text it says that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Our suffering is preparing us for eternal glory. Okay, so what's he talking about there? An eternal weight of glory. Okay, so this is getting a little bit more confusing. Paul has described suffering in a way that we would never describe it. Light and momentary. We would describe it as an agonizing marathon. Now, he's talking about glory, heaven. When we think of heaven, when we think of that glory, we think of our tears being wiped away, and heaven is a place of joy. We would never describe joy as weighty or heavy. And yet Paul is describing it in that way here. What's he talking about? What's he doing? Here's what I think he's doing. I think he is using the language of earth to describe something beyond the reach of human articulation, the glory of heaven. And the only way he can do that is to describe it in a way that normally doesn't make sense to us. He wants to create in us a certain feeling, a certain experience that is beyond our reach. An experience in our souls that begins to detach us from this world and make us long for a new home. Isaiah captures the same thought that Paul is capturing here in Isaiah 35 verse 10. He says, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Here's what Isaiah and Paul are both saying. They're saying that in heaven, your suffering will be a distant memory. It will be something long forgotten. Not because you never think about it anymore, but it'll be long forgotten in the sense that there will be a joy so great, so powerful, so amazing, a weight of glory so intense 
that it will overtake your affections, your mind and your heart with an apprehension of the beauty of God that will cause everything else that has ever happened in your life to look small. It's as if Paul is saying, you think your suffering is heavy? Just wait. There is a heaviness coming that will far outweigh the heaviness that you feel now, except it will not be painful. It will be gloriously pleasant. I was reminded of this just a month after Jude died in an unlikely place. I was on ESPN.com. And every time I see a Cubs highlight, I click on it. It was August 12th. Clicked on this Cubs highlight. And it was the bottom of the ninth inning. There were two outs. There were two strikes. The Cubs were down by three runs at Wrigley Field. The bases were loaded. And an unknown utility man for the Cubs named David Bodie was at the plate. David Bodie had been through the ringer that year. He started off in minor league baseball. So you think of all the suffering he went through. He rode on buses, and he got paid nothing, and he finally worked his way up to the major leagues, and he's at bat. And it's a highlight, so you know what's going to happen, but the anticipation, I'm like, oh my goodness, did this actually happen? And he hits a grand slam. And it's like he absolutely lost his mind. And he just spread out his arms like a little kid who forgets all of their inhibitions on a dance floor and just runs to first base with all of his might. And by the time he was halfway to second, the team had already gathered at home plate. And he's running like partly to get to home, but partly just to be embraced by his teammates, right? And he rounds second and he rounds third And he's just so filled with joy as the crowd is just going absolutely nuts. And he gets home. It's like his teammates didn't even know what to do. And so they just ripped off his jersey. (laughs) He had a blue Under Armour on underneath. But, you know, you get the point. They rip this thing off. And I'm watching this highlight. And all of a sudden, I burst into tears. And it dawns on me. That's what it was like for Jude when he got to heaven. Sorrow and sighing fled away. All the pokes, all the surgeries, everything that happened to him in the past was gone. He was welcomed home, not by the Cubs, by Jesus and the angels and Moses and all the heroes of our faith. Everything bad done away with. Yet I have to think, when David Bodie reached home, he had to have thought, this is amazing, but I know it's going to end. He's probably still talking about it, like wishing that he could relive that moment. 
But here's the amazing thing about heaven. It's forever. That moment, that eternal weight of glory, that joy that overtakes you and makes the chocolate milk come out of your nose, makes you laugh so hard you want it to stop, it will last forever. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Why would I want you to be here when he gets to be there? I don't want him to be here. I want to be there. Don't you? This life feels so important to us as we trudge through our daily existence. We are not home yet. This is not the place that you were meant to settle down. There will be a glory that will swallow up this earthly existence. And God wants to place a hope in you this morning that is so deep and so lasting that you begin to let go of your life here and live for eternity. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to do something that is humanly impossible. I'm asking you to think about the hardest thing that's happening in your life right now or something that's happened in your past that you can't seem to let go of. And I'm asking you to thank God for it. I'm asking you to change your perspective, to begin to understand that God, in a great mystery, has brought this suffering into your life to detach you from a world that will always let you down and attach you to a hope that will never disappoint you. I remember in the midst of our suffering with Jude, having a conversation with Melissa. And she said, Drew, you have to submit. I remember we were eating dinner together as a family and I was becoming so overwhelmed with emotion and even frustration and anger that I went back to our bedroom. I laid on my face in front of the bathroom and I said, God, I feel like you're gonna kill me. I feel like you're trying to destroy my faith. And you've put something so difficult in my life and impossible that you're trying to force me out of this Christianity thing. And I said, I give up. I submit. 
whatever you're trying to do, I don't understand. But I'm your servant. Here's what he'll do with your pain and your suffering. Your suffering will go from being the reason that you are angry with God to the reason that you sing his praise. You know, Jude's name meant, means, praise. And through Jude's life, God taught me and is teaching me to let go of my home on earth and to sing his praises. Will you join me? Let's pray. Father God, you're calling us this morning to something humanly impossible. You're calling us to die to ourselves and to live a brand new kind of life. A life where we no longer see our pain and our suffering as a reason to be angry with you, but rather we see it as part of your good purpose for our life. God, I'm asking that we would be a people whose hope is fixed in heaven, who know you so deeply, God, that you can literally take us through hell on earth and we trust you. We believe that you're at work. We believe that you have good purposes for us. Would you make us those kind of people? In Jesus' name, amen.